Welcome back, NodPod. Thank you guys so much for joining me for another episode of Chasing Heroin, a super special episode of Chasing Heroin. I hope that you guys are as inspired by this episode and by this man as I have been. So I interviewed today Khalil Rafati. He just celebrated 20 years clean and sober, and it is a true rags to riches story. Skid Row, homeless heroin addict to multimillionaire. He has a brand, Sun Life Organics, and they've got multiple stores across the country, literal, actual, you know, multimillionaire. And one of the things that I'm always trying to impress upon you guys is that because I was so concerned about like my credit and my background hindering my ability to have actual financial success. And what I discovered in my journey to owning my business and what is the case with him as well, the work ethic and relationships of today will determine our future much more than the mistakes of our past. Because as we meet people along the way and we impress them with our work ethic, that's often where chances and opportunities come from. And that was the case with him. No, you'll hear a little bit about his family, certainly not, you know, family assistance, nothing like that. He just, he brick by brick put together this new life with his work ethic and his integrity and showing up in sobriety. And I spent several days researching for this interview and I listened to him on other podcasts and read his first book and I got so re-inspired again. So I, I recommend listen to him here and then just search Khalil Rafati in Spotify or on Apple. Start with his first episode on The Skinny Confidential in 2019. He was also recently on my friend Doug's episode, The Adversity Advantage. And I got like re-inspired again at eight and a half years, just listening to his words on other shows and like about like my brand and the Chasing Heroin brand and what I want to do with it. And because like, if I'm being honest, there's always been a part of me that I have done better in recovery, of course, but like, there's also a huge part of me that feels like I'm super dependent on Skylar. And like, that's kind of weird for me to even say, but like a huge part of what I considered an achievement was when I finally got married. And it's, and I don't even want to like say that, like, I don't want to be that person that doesn't sound like me, but it's true. And when I got married, I was like, <sighs> like I did it, you know, as like a woman, like someone like chose me. And that was like a huge part of what felt like success to me. And listening to Khalil over the past few days made me feel like, no, I can do more. And I love my husband. I'm so grateful for our marriage, but like I can do more. I don't want to have to feel that way and feel like, well, thank God I married, I, you know, otherwise I couldn't support myself, that kind of thing. And I just got so inspired listening to him. And so I hope you guys are inspired as well. It's one of my favorite interviews I've probably ever done. I can't recommend enough following him on Instagram, reading his first book and learning a little bit more about him, his story is such a blueprint for rising up from the ashes. And he, he like I, our big message and something that he really believes is that our addiction is actually a superpower and it's our biggest asset. It is not a liability. And you guys know, I believe that. And it's so important to me that you guys believe that too. I don't want anyone listening to feel like I'm a loser because I'm an addict. No, negative, negative. We are the winners. We are the lucky ones. So I hope you guys enjoy this episode. Please let me know your thoughts when you hear it. And uh, we'll see you guys next week. Welcome back, NodPod. Thank you guys so much for joining. That's what I call my, you'll appreciate this. So my community, I call them the NodPod because we're all nodders. It's a lot of opiate addicts. So guys, I, I am so excited. I'm so excited to be talking to Khalil today. A lot of you guys have requested him on the show and I got him. I met you in Austin and you were like, 
the kindest, easiest person to talk to. And I got to be honest. So I've spent the past like four or five days in your head, basically read your book. The first one, listened to you on several different podcast episodes and listening to you has inspired me so much. Like this morning, before we even speak, this morning I was doing hill sprints and I was listening to your episode on the adversity advantage with our friend Doug. And I was like, because I owned a spin studio in recovery that I sold and it was this cool brand. And I have this podcast. And while I was listening to you, I was like, okay, now I just need to build this brand and, and he's right and I can expand. And I was like so pumped just like listening to you. I'm so excited to have you on the show. Thank you so much for your time course. I'm so glad we met. And uh, you were really my my lighthouse in the storm at that event. And that event, unbeknownst to you, was an incredible exercise for me because growing up a short, awkward, insecure, first-generation immigrant parents, tons of abuse and neglect at home, growing up in, 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 a, in a small rural town in Ohio, my dream, my fantasy was to escape and go to LA like so many idiots to become rich and famous. That was why I eventually left. And that's why I, I went there because I truly thought, I think like a lot of people, because I'm friends with quite a few people who are, are in that world. And quite a few of those people are in our right. world, so to speak. And the ones that aren't are, are on their way, many yes. of them. But um, <laughs> I really thought that that money and fame were going to solve everything. I really felt like if I could achieve a certain dollar amount or if I could achieve a certain amount of fame, that all of my problems would magically disappear. And as silly as that sounds, there's a lot of people that subconsciously still believe that. So I've had little, I've had little moments and experiences around fame, meaning I'm going to use somebody that I'm actually best friends with and I'm not dropping his name, but somebody who I love dearly and I've gone all over the world with him. But Kelly Slater as an example. I and mean, you live in a coastal town so you can appreciate how famous he is. And, you know, I've been, I've gone a lot of different places with him and everywhere we go, you can't go three steps without somebody stopping him and asking him to take a picture with him. He, for whatever reason, is so accommodating and so kind and so... Seems like he's into it, actually. And when I asked him after it happened like 50 times and it interrupted our, our day and our flow and, and what I wanted to accomplish for my own separate, my own uh, selfish needs. And by the way, I'm the first one to want to get a fucking picture with him when I'm with him. But I get irritated when other people ask for a picture. And I asked him, I'm like, it's so weird because we have another mutual friend who's in another industry who is as famous as they come. And he literally says no. When someone comes up and says, hey, man, can I get a picture? He's just like, nope, I don't do that. And like he said, Kelly said to me, he and I wouldn't be where we were and we couldn't live the life that we get to live without our fans. Why he doesn't want to take pictures with me, you would have to ask him that. But for me, it's my responsibility to my fans. So I've been around fame and I've seen how irritating it can get. I've also been in my store 150 times where people will come in that are iconically fucking famous and all they want to do is just get a smoothie or get a juice or get an acai bowl and eat it like a normal person and get the fuck out of there. And I'm going to I'm going to use somebody who doesn't live in this country and he's no longer living in Malibu, but 
There was a period of time when Harry Styles was in Malibu and he was coming into our store every day. This fucking kid could not have been nicer or kinder. I mean, he was the, he would stand at the back counter before people figured out who he was. He would stand at the back counter and sometimes the girls would call people's names when they set their drinks or their bowls down and they didn't have like a a voice that projected very well. Sometimes Harry would literally grab people's drinks and be like, Sharon, Sharon, you're sweet, Daddy. That's how kind this yeah. kid is. And about a week into him coming in there every day, twice a day, he was at the counter and some girl had gone over to the grab and go and grabbed a, a pressed juice. And she walked over and she looks over and she she like physically reacts when she realizes it's him. And she literally out loud screams, oh my God, and drops her glass pressed juice and it fucking showers everywhere. (laughs) And Harry being Harry, like bends down and starts helping her clean it up. And I'm fucking horrified because I don't want anyone touching broken glass in my shop. Right. So now I'm trying to go behind the thing. And she literally then says, could we take a picture together? And it's, it's, it's actually online. You can Google if you if you ever are bored. If you Google Sunlight Organic okay. Harry Styles, like there's a bunch of pictures of him. But there's one in particular where he's like really uncomfortable standing next to this girl. That was the girl that screamed and oh shattered God. her juice all over. Well, I moved to LA for the fame too, and I feel like as I thought that that would help my addiction. I thought it would be easier to be an actress than finish college. This was part of my, like my I my you know my addictive thinking. And I will admit, I was, when we were at that event in Austin, I felt that with you. Because at that event, you're super famous, right? Everyone's looking at you. Everyone knows you, you know, at Dear Media. And like, we're walking around and I felt like also like famous, you know what I mean? And I was like, and then I've heard you talk about that. And I'm like, I was totally doing the same thing, you know? It it was intensely uncomfortable as much as I love those girls and as much as I appreciate Lauren and Michael. And I mean, look, they're part of why I would consider myself a little bit famous now. The book helped a lot, but being on their podcast launched me into the stratosphere. All of her followers, followers happen to be ridiculously hot young women like yourself, if I can even say that in today's day and age. But I'll take it. It's Trust true. Me, I'll I take mean, it. You can say it. <laughs> When we were there, if you looked at that sea of hundreds of people, there must have been 400 people there. It was like 95% ridiculously hot women in their 20s, 30s, and 40s. And for the first time in my life, I was the Kelly Slater or I was the Anthony Kiedis or I was the whoever because in that world, they all knew who I was. In fact, half, half the fucking room had probably read my book. So the first three incredible, beautiful, hot, brilliant young women that walked up to say hello, I think you were number two, (laughs) um, I was super flattered. But when it got to number five and number six, number seven, and when it got to the point where you, I think, went to the bathroom and I walked outside because I was actually, remember how hot it was outside and cold it was inside? So I went outside for a moment to to warm up and there wasn't many people out there. And a girl came up and got like up on me and was like, you know, and what are you doing later? And and I felt what those actual famous people felt. I felt that super uncomfortable, 
almost like it was almost like a claustrophobic feeling. So you were my lighthouse in the storm because you would stand on one side and Josh Doug, Doug God, was hanging out with us. All right, Jesus, he's gonna kill me. Doug would stand on the other side and you guys were flanking me. And remember we backed yeah. ourselves all the way up against yeah. the uh-huh. wall. We we're literally back against the wall behind the speakers. Yes. <laughs> yes, you became my safe space. So I really thank God you were there and I'm glad we got to meet. I'm glad, I'm glad I'm on here. I am too. Thank you so much. I'm so glad we got to meet. And within like 10 minutes, I think of of speaking with you too, I was like, and I find that we do this in our world. I was like homeless IV speedball user, me too. And I think that's when we were like, cool, we're in this together. Same thing, you know, like homeless, the whole nine. It's like, it's like vampires. It's like two vampires going to a, a grand ball in the old timey days. And there's a thousand people there. And there's two vampires that went there separately that have never met <laughs> within 15 minutes. They are going to lock eyes and they're going to go, oh, you're a fucking vampire too. <laughs> that's, that's, what, that's so true. I think that that's so true. And yeah, one of the main reasons too, why I'm, I'm so excited to have you on and I, and I want to get into your backstory and how we even get to the Khalil that's right in front of me. Your message aligns so much with my whole like purpose in life, which is to let people know that not only do you not have to die a dope fiend, you can be a homeless dope fiend, feel like a fucking loser and completely change your life. And our addiction is an asset, not a liability. And one of your biggest messages is that addiction is a superpower. And before we even get, yeah, I've heard you say that before we even get into your background and how you came to know that, explain to the audience why you think addiction is a superpower. I just want to start with them knowing how inspirational like this is going to be. Well, anybody listening that had any type of a habit, any type of a, I don't give, I don't care. It could have been pills. It could have been Kratom. It could have been heroin. It could have been speedballs like us. It could be smoking, IV, parachuting, whatever kids do these days, putting it up their ass. I have no idea. But anybody that had any type of a habit understands that when you are unwell, when you get sick, dope sick, there is nothing, nothing that is going to come between you and quote unquote getting well, which is very sad that that's what we used to call it because it was not getting well. It was getting more sick. But I I remember hundreds of times waking up. It's five o'clock in the morning. I unfortunately shot as much coke as I did heroin. So the heroin wore off very, very quickly. And after stomping on my cottons and pushing off and pushing off and eventually getting to the point where I'm literally just shooting water, I would scour the floor. I would turn people's sofas over. I would dig through the cushions. I would try to find their laundry quarters. I would go into their cars and lift their car seats up. I would go, if, and if that didn't work, it was straight to the bus with whatever change was in my pocket, straight to a 7-Eleven, panhandling in front of that 7-Eleven for hours until I had enough money to where I could fix and where I would no longer be dope sick. The amount of work, the amount of effort, the amount of time, the amount of perseverance that one has to have, the fortitude, the strength that one has to have to live that way beats the living fucking shit out of some Ivy League graduation certificate, diploma, whatever the fuck it's called. I don't know because I didn't go to college and I don't even know how to spell college. 
and I didn't even graduate from high school, <laughs> but, but we are so fucking strong and we are so driven and we are so resilient. We just don't know that it's actually way easier to become successful and to be happy than it is to live the way that we were living. It's so much easier. I heard once in recovery that if you want a hard life, do the easy things. If you want an easy life, do the hard things. And I used to think people that were like going to work and paying taxes were like suckers. And we had it made, you know, I was like, I'm not doing any of that shit. That's for suckers. And sure enough, I didn't pay taxes for like 10 years when I would occasionally work. And now I'm like still paying that off. Doing the easy thing of filing yearly is actually how you live an easy life. And if we can take that fortitude that drove us to get well and use it now, because I had my fitness studio in California during COVID and it was really, really hard. My husband's in recovery too. And I've always said that we built outdoors. We did better in COVID. We doubled the valuation of the business during COVID. And I've always said that I believe it's because we were both dope fiends who had to hustle and that hustle mentality just came with us. And that's what I try that's what I try to tell people because I felt like, especially being like a woman who was homeless, using needles, sharing needles with homeless people like you, I shared needles. I would pick them up off the ground, like you said. And being a woman who did that, I just felt like such a fucking loser when I came out, you know, and I'm like, no one's ever going to marry me. No one's ever going to date me. And so I try to let people know like, no, 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 no. You can actually take that and manage it and leverage it for success in your sober life. Like I promise it can be such a good thing. So it's a superpower. It's, a it's superpower. definitely, yeah, it's definitely, if you take that same drive, if you, if you even took 10%, 20% of the drive that you had getting fucked up and staying fucked up and you apply that towards creating abundance for yourself or towards having a, an amazing relationship with a significant other or towards, um, fuck, I don't know. Some people get super into spirituality and meditation and prayer. And I, I went through, you know, different, different, many different shades of recovery. For me, I love business. I love providing jobs for people. I love inspiring people to be healthy. I love being an author. I love being a speaker. I love being an entrepreneur. And I got to be honest, I love being rich. Yeah. I love having the money to spoil the shit out of people that I love. That's the coolest shit ever. That is like, that's a big part of my identity, I think, because my language of love is is gift giving. So I love doing nice things for people and having, you can never be broke enough to help people, but man, you can make a bunch of money and you can do a bunch of really cool things. And I was taught, thank God in recovery that do good things and don't get caught like do good things for people and don't brag about it. Don't talk about it. I may make some references while I'm on a podcast just because it's, you know, it, it's intrinsically related to what we're talking about. But in general, what I learned in 12 step rooms is, is just, you know, forget about even charitable stuff. Just like pick trash up off the ground when no one's looking, return your, your shopping cart, even if it's raining and don't look around and see who's watching you return your shopping cart. And by the way, if you don't have a shopping cart and there's two or three that are sitting there when you get to your car and throw your single bag in your car, grab one of them and take it back up to the thing and don't look around to see who, who saw you do that. For me, it was so important to do that stuff because I had no self-esteem. I had no self-esteem. So I had to do esteemable acts in order to build self-esteem. And um, I did enough of them where I got to the point where I started to 
forgive myself. I think that was the first step, you know, forgive myself. Because let's be honest, it's really important to do all those amends and do the steps as they're outlined in the book and all that, blah, blah, blah. But one thing that's not talked about enough is is self-forgiveness. You know, we all did some things that we're not proud of. And there's certain things that you and I wouldn't even talk about on this podcast. But if we were alone right now, we might have some real conversations about some shit that we had to do in order to get money or in order to get drugs. And um, I'm pretty open about that. Most people aren't open about that. I think you're only as sick as your secrets. But through those esteemable acts, I was able to start to get to the point where I could forgive myself. But here's the great irony. If you stick around long enough and you actually help some people out, I don't, I don't do it anymore. I'm totally open and transparent about that. But you know, my first 15 years, I, I sponsored a lot of people. If you think you're bad, if you think you're a piece of shit, if you think you've done some really fucked up things, go sponsor some people. Yeah. <laughs> totally. Go sponsor some people and listen to their fourth and fifth and fucking put your seatbelt on. Wow. It's the great I, it's the great equalizer, right? Because then we understand that we that we weren't alone. And I'm like you, I share a lot of that stuff too. I share a lot of the dark stuff. I think it's really important to have a few people out there saying like, yep, I'm a woman alone. And I picked up needles off the ground. I did. I would use your needle if you weren't looking. I didn't care. I lied to somebody once. My rig broke. There was this older dude in this abandoned apartment. And I was like, let me use your needle. And he was like, I have hep C. And I lied and said, I do too. Can I use it? And he I was like, relate. but I've never heard you say that before. And I was like, well, it's never come up, but I do to use his needle knowing he had hep C. Like I, like I did that. I want to back up to how you got there because your origin story is, is so important because I've learned the longer I'm doing the show, there are definitely a lot of addicts that have done well ultimately in life, right? There, there's a lot of us. Your story though, in particular is a literal rags to riches story. And there's no assistance along the way of any kind, except for you developing relationships with people and your work ethic as you started to come back. And that was how you built a multi-million dollar brand with 10 locations. There was no family money. There was no loans. You didn't have any credit. You had to put this together brick by brick based on your work ethic and the relationships you were developing. And that was one of my biggest barriers was same thing. There wasn't going to be any family money helping me out. No credit. How do I do anything? You know, I got clean at 34, a little bit older, like you've said, and thought like, how am I ever going to do anything? So let's talk about you're from Ohio and you didn't start out with a lot of advantages. Can you talk a little bit about your life then and how you were raised? Yeah, I don't I don't talk about it too much anymore, but okay. just to, to, to no, it's fine. Just to summarize, immigrant parents both from different countries, different religions, both of them had to learn the language. Neither of them know how to be parents. There was a lot of neglect, there was a lot of violence, and there was not just sexual abuse, but there was incest. So that's sort of the template. You know, that's kind of the the petri dish of of filth <laughs> that I grew up in. And, um, and you know, the reason that the reason I don't talk about it so much anymore is because I don't like to give too much energy to it because I truly believe that we co-create our existence through our words, through our thoughts 
and through our, our ability to, to visualize. The other reason I don't talk about it too much anymore is because, oh, okay, so I got molested or, you know, my dad beat my mom or I could tell you a thousand sad stories. And by the way, if this was 10 years ago, I'd spend half the podcast talking about how horrible my childhood was. But why didn't Oprah end up shooting dope and smoking crack? She got raped. There was incest there. She was pregnant at 13. She was born black in a time when being born black truly was a disadvantage. She struggled with her weight her entire life. She had so many more difficulties than I had. And yet she went on to inspire and help a billion people. So for me to sit here and tell you that I shot heroin and I smoked crack because someone touched my naughty spot and because no one loved me and my parents didn't love me, all of which is true. It's not honest. It's not honest. I smoked crack and I shot heroin because it fucking felt great. And I'm selfish. And me feeling good is more important than how you feel. And me feeling good is more important than the safety of you, your husband, the contents of your purse, your car, your ATM card. When I was out there drinking and using, I didn't give a fuck about anybody but myself for 80% of the time. There were moments where some of the kindness, which I think I inherited from my mother, would shine through. I do remember moments of being on the street and, and helping others and, and, and kind of sharing what I had. But I got high because it felt great. And I got high because I was awake. <laughs> if I was sleeping, if I was sleeping, I typically wasn't smoking crack or shooting dope, although there were some blackouts where I'm sure I was, or I would wake up in the middle of a nod and I'd push off the rest and, you know, whatever. But it was a horrible childhood. It was weird living in a rural town where everybody looked like the fucking Brady Bunch. I was sad. I was temperamentally on the depressive side, as it says in the 12 by 12, apt to be swamped with guilt and self-loathing, often getting a painful and misshapen pleasure out of it. I used to go to a lot of 12-step meetings. And um, I was shaped funny. I talk about that. Physically? Physically? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I got really short legs and I have a very long torso and I have a massive skull. And I now at 53 years old, I know how to get the right haircut and style it the right way. And I've trained my body to look somewhat proportioned. I know that I get a five inch inseam on my shorts instead of the seven. Like I know how to work with what I got, right? I ain't complaining about what I got. God bless me. I got a fucking full head of hair at 53 years old. I'm built like a fucking tank. I've got a, you know, a lot of energy. Short people live longer. But as a 13, 14 year old kid, when no one would pick me to, to be on their team when it came to sports, or if they did pick me, it would be at the very end when there would be like me and like the special needs kid. Like, no, I'm not even exaggerating. It would be like, I literally remember the kid's name. I'm not going to say it out of respect, but like me and this one kid would always be the last one to be picked for teams because I couldn't catch. I just, I, I was super insecure and fearful. And I just didn't have any type of athletic abilities. And um, it was the perfect setup for alcoholism and addiction to become the great panacea, right? It started with shoplifting. It started with like sneaking beers with the older kids and taking a puff off their joints to get attention, masturbating, like 
nonstop, like as a little boy, when I finally discovered that pleasure zone area and the ability to use that to escape from how I felt. Vandalism was a big one. I got arrested the first time at 12 years old. I was arrested three times before I was 16 years old, the third time for aggravated menacing. So really fucked up, juvenile delinquent, insecure, never, you know, you hear this every time somebody gets up at the podium, they always say like, I never felt like I belong. I didn't belong. My fucking dad wore a turban when I was a little boy. He didn't later in life. But when I was a little boy, my daddy wore a turban. I was called all kinds of unspeakable names. My mother was from Poland. You're too young to remember what it was like in the 70s. But there was a show called All in the Family where every other fucking joke was about Polacks and Polish people and how fucking stupid Polish people were. And so half of me was getting made fun of by these people. And the other half was, you know, you're a fucking terrorist. You're this, you're that. Like... It was brutal. So drugs and alcohol, ultimately, much more so than vandalism, shoplifting, sex, masturbation, junk food. I consumed a lot of junk food. I was addicted to video games. I was addicted, addicted to just about everything. Nothing worked better than drugs and alcohol. So that became my, my panacea. That became my what would soothe my soul. And I started at a very early age and I progressed slowly because I would blackout drink as a little kid, as a young teenager, and bad shit would happen. I mean, I would like regularly like sleep with my best friend's girlfriend or sleep with my girlfriend's sister or sleep with one of my friends that was a girl that I definitely should not have been sleeping with. And I would ruin the fucking friendship over and over and over again. So yeah, I was cautious. My blackouts would happen or my binges would happen and then I would abstain. And then it would happen again, and then I would abstain. And as I got older, they got closer together. They say it's a progressive disease, right? But it really wasn't until my early to mid-20s when I started experimenting with the harder stuff, I found that I could get away with shit. Like when I would get blackout drunk, I would do some really stupid shit. But when I would take like a bunch of ecstasy or a bunch of ketamine or I would candy flip or hippie flip or kind of had some amazing experiences, you know, some that I still hold near and dear to my heart. I mean, there was some transcendent experiences on psychedelics on some of the, you know, more interesting drugs. I loved Xanax and all the barbiturates and the benzos. And then I was in a rock and roll band and all of the guys in the band were super cool. And I was still pretending like I was super cool. And unlike everybody else in the band, I wasn't famous and I didn't have famous parents, but they did like really famous parents. I was living in Malibu. So these were sort of like the scions of rock. I think the word scion, uh, scion. I think it's scion. pronounced scion, but I know exactly what you mean. So you moved to LA at some point and you start trying to make life in LA. Okay. I did. Yeah. And I got my SAG card fairly quickly. Okay. I have to ask you about that because I got my okay. SAG card, not fairly quickly. Getting your oh. SAG card is almost fucking impossible. How it did is. you get, I thought I was going to be so special that I would get Taft heart lead, which is so rare. How did you, did, did you get Taft heart lead? How did you get your SAG yeah, card? You did? Uh, I, I didn't, yeah, I did the I, extra work route. How did you get it? I was on the set. My girlfriend was a model and she was shooting a Diet Coke commercial 
in wherever Magic Mountain is out there. We're, you know, like Canyon Country, Magic Mountain, Valencia. They were, they were shooting a Diet Coke commercial and I was standing on the sidelines and the agency was there and they were like, what about that guy? Literally, like right out of a movie, they were like, he's not part of the, and they were like, well, we want him. Oh my God. And so, so you yeah, bought Taft so Hartley, which almost never happens. I thought I would get Taft Hartley and did not. I had to do, you know, you get the vouchers over time doing, yeah. that's the way I did it. So the production company HSI paid $1,250 to Taft Hartley me. I ended up in a commercial and I ended up in a few more commercials and uh, I was well on my way. And I, and I really, and this is going to sound super arrogant, but I know enough really famous actors there's nothing special about them. It doesn't take any great talent to pretend to be like someone else. In fact, most of the people listening to this podcast right now, if you are an addict or an alcoholic, you're probably pretty amazing at pretending to be somebody that you're not. Right. And you probably could have been a pretty amazing <laughs> actor. Being an amazing actor involves quite a bit of mental illness. If you were an amazing actor 150 years ago, you would have been locked in an insane asylum. If you're a really amazing actor today, you get $25 million a picture. Right, right. <laughs> so I was well on my way. I just couldn't handle the auditions. I couldn't. Every audition I went into, now I'm sure most of this was in my head or maybe it wasn't, but every audition I walked into, which was maybe a, a couple, everybody was six feet tall, you know, a foot taller than me. They would have their shirts open and they were hairless. If I had my shirt open, it would have looked like I had a fucking black chinchilla uh, sweater <laughs> on because I'm so fucking hairy because I'm half Arab. And I always have this like, like layer, this just like, you know, like two inches of Arab man belly. And they had fucking the eight packs with the striations on the side. Like they had, their sides had abs, you know? And they were surfers and they had that beautiful straight medium length hair. And I had this fucking coarse Middle Eastern goddamn Brillo pad on my head. <laughs> and I just, I couldn't handle, I was so fucking insecure and I couldn't handle the rejection or the thought of rejection. So the truth is maybe after one or two auditions, I just stopped going. But the rock and roll thing, I was good. I was good at pretending to be a rock star. I really pulled it off. I had this kind of like, Charles Manson, Jim Morrison, Scott Weiland, you know, short, angry, blown on junk, sunglasses at night, leather pants, like fake Chrome Hearts leather pants. Um, I played that role incredibly well because I watched enough movies and documentaries about rock stars. I also was born with a, with a really nice voice. And I also was born with the ability to come up with lyrics so these guys that were, you know, the one kid's dad started the Allman Brothers, Dwayne Betts, who's still one of my best friends to this day. And he's super famous. He's touring all over the world right now. He just played the Grand Old Opry, which was so fucking cool to see him post about that. The other guy's dad was uh, Roy Orbison, who you're too young to know who that is. I know is, who that but... is. I know who that is. Okay. <laughs> so Alex Orbison, every now and then would be, would, would be our drummer. It was between him and another guy from another band. Mark Ford played with us for a while from the Black Crows. He was the guy that oh, wow. got kicked out of the Black Crows for drugs. Barry Oakley Jr., whose father was also in the Allman Brothers. It was really neat. It was really, really neat. We got treated like royalty because of them and their last names. 
we got free drugs and women loved us. And I lived my life as a fake rock star. We didn't play that many shows. We recorded some really cool music. And I lived life higher than fuck without a moral compass, experimenting with all kinds of drugs and living my honeymoon period for a good, I'd say three years where I could do no wrong and everything was great. And and then in the late nineties, things got very dark in Malibu and people started dying. People started overdosing. People started killing themselves. There was a darkness that set in and I was a part of that darkness. And we played one last show. It was a showcase for a couple of different labels. And I pulled a Sid Barrett. I don't know if you get that reference. I don't. What is that? What is that one? <laughs> Sid Barrett was the singer for Pink Floyd. And he was an incredible singer, but he was more into drugs and engaging in his mental illness. And at the height of Pink Floyd's fame, when they were recording their first real breakthrough album, he fucking disappeared. He just did a bunch of drugs and he disappeared. And if you watch the movie, The Wall by Pink Floyd, that's about Sid Barrett. Oh, okay. And and it's a true story. Like, And the eerie thing is, because if you watch the documentary about the making of that album, he fucking shows up halfway through the making of that album. He walks into the studio and says, and I'll quote, where's my money? Oh my God. And the manager's like, fuck, like go call the record company, get a total, like get him a check. And he got the check and he walked right back out. And that happened a few more times until eventually he just disappeared and no one ever saw him again. Really? To this day? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, that's wild. I didn't know that. So in, in, at the height of my almost famous moment, I panicked and as a petulant child thought, wouldn't it be glamorous if I just sort of disappeared for a while and like went and lived on the streets and, you know, but yeah, fucking brilliant. And I did. And, uh, and the wheels came off, you know, the car got impounded for a while. I could call girls like yourself and, you know, can I come over, you know, you know, can I borrow your ATM card? What's your pin number? You know, for a while, People would have pity on me and take me in and hose me off and clean me up and feed me. And then I would disappear after 90 days. And then after a while, I became like homeless, like real homeless, not homeless, like crashing on my buddy's sofa, not homeless, like sleeping in my car, but legit homeless, welfare, food stamps, panhandling. And that was, that was uh, 2000 to, uh, and 2001, 2002, and 2003, almost two years of real solid, I'm fucked. I'm never going to get out of this. I already, I already was a convicted felon. I already was a high school dropout. So I had just given up. And you were on, you were on skid row at that point, just to, this is Mm -hmm. where he ended up. So there's one story in particular that I want to ask you about because I really relate to this. I think this was in your book or I heard it on, on another podcast you were in a bathroom and you had written God help, God help me. in your yeah. own blood, but yeah. weren't you, and again, our listeners are most of them like, you know, a heroin addicts, opiate addicts. And so we all understand my co-host and I talk about NDPEs, near death poop experiences where you're so complicated, yeah. it almost kills you. Wasn't that yeah. what happened with you? You had used a pencil to try to dislodge 
And that's what happened. I mean, that's like the height of, and that was shortly before you were finally homeless, right? Like the power was yeah. off. Like the scene that you paint around this is very, like, very clear. Well, I mean, to be fair, I'm an idiot, but I'm not a complete fucking idiot. I definitely went and bought like two cases of fleet enemas, okay. which normally, normally in the past, if you guys were hardcore junkies, you know what a fleet enema is. I think it's like a silicone or silica it's some really slippery shit that you shoot up your butt and then you finally shit. And it got to the point where even that didn't work. The pain, the stabbing pain got so bad, you know, trust me, I tried with my fingers. I tried with the enemas. I tried like, I even got like an enema bag and I tried getting water. Nothing would get this shit to come out of me. And the electricity and the water had both been shut off. The electricity, because I didn't pay my bill. The water, because I wouldn't answer my door because my landlord was demanding the rent that was three months late. So just to sort of teach me a lesson, he shut the fucking water off in my unit. So, you know, yeah, there's flies everywhere for obvious reasons. There's blood everywhere. I was a picker. When I would shoot the Coke, I would pick. You can still see there's scars all over. Um, you can see here, I cut that part of my nose out right there with cuticle clippers because I thought I had worms and bugs coming out of my nose. I clipped the sides of my ears off. There was blood everywhere, flies everywhere. And yes, I wrote in a very dramatic fashion, God help me, God help me. Because my fantasy always was that somebody was going to come save me. And I knew at some point my girlfriend and her family would come back from Europe and they would see that. And then, of course, they would save me because I always wanted somebody to save me. Sort of a common theme throughout my life until I realized that Mama Bird is never coming back. Right. So right. you either fucking lay in your filth and your shit or you jump out of that nest and you fucking fly. So I, I shoved it up my ass. I was trying to get it into the shit and it slipped and it punctured my rectum and I bled out like a fucking stuck pig. Yeah, it was horrible. And I want to get to, and I just want to share that because again, when you've been on the floor like that with your, you know, rectum pierced because you could, it feels like you are never going to be anything other than that person on the fucking floor. And that's why I do this so that we can show that we're not, you're not that person on the floor anymore. Right. But it really doesn't feel like that at the time. So you end up on Skid Row four years and if you guys want to read in his book, I forgot to die. You can read more about like his experiences while he was out there, but you know, like the bottom of the barrel skid row is a very scary place to be. I heard actually on one of the podcasts, somebody was like, is there like a community of homelessness though? And they kind of like look out for each other. And at the same time, while I'm listening, you're, you're on the podcast. We both laughed a little and you're like, no. And I was like, and I answered out loud. No, when you're out there and you're homeless, there's no like real homeless community. You know what I mean? It's we'll take your life for $5. Yeah. yeah there's they'll, they'll no, you over dollar rock. I will tell you though, one of the girls that's in my book, I think it's in my first book where the guy and the girl, the girl was helping me to score because it was Christmas and there was nobody selling. Remember no Christmas for junkies. Yes. And part of the first book, the girl that I met who was all tatted up and the guy that we eventually went to, to go get the dope, who was also tatted up with all kinds of like MS-13 or I, I don't know. I, maybe, maybe, I shouldn't say MS-13. I don't know what gang he was affiliated with, but he was fucking tatted up everywhere. 
And they, they, all their veins were collapsed. So I had to hit them in their neck and I lied and I said, I knew how to do it. Right. Cause that's what we do. I wanted to get the dope. And he's like, do you know how to hit people in their neck? I'm like, yeah, of course. And so you miss, they're dead. Right. It's right? an artery. Yes. Uh-huh. <laughs> so it's your main artery. So yeah. <laughs> I, I didn't, I didn't miss. Thank God. Years later, I think three years later, she walked into a rehab where I was working oh, wow. and we, like the moment she walked in, I was like, and we had only known each other for one night. Yeah. And she was like, I know you. And I'm like, I know you. And I'll tell you why I remember. I could not believe how fucking gorgeous she was. And I couldn't understand why she was living like that. Yeah. Isn't that interesting? Yeah. Like. It was okay for me to have scabies and ringworm and be living on the fucking streets, but yeah. because she was beautiful, somehow that made her exempt from- That's interesting though, because I had cops say that to me too. Cops would say, and it's like, it's different if you're, and obviously it's not acceptable for any human being to live that way, but I think you're right. Like police would say that to me because I got arrested all the time and they would separate me from my junkie boyfriend that I used with. And they'd be like, Janine, what are you doing out here? You're a beautiful girl. You shouldn't be living like this. And that that kind of adds to, and in a way, that's a double-edged sword because in a way there's some privilege there. I could panhandle a little easier. Like my hustle, oh, yeah. was, I acted like I had run out of gas and I'd found yep. some car keys on the ground. I have a car and I stole right. like a little cute dress from Walmart and I picked yeah. really bad too. So it was only when I wasn't so picked, I could approach you and I would walk up to somebody and be like, hey, I, I ran out of gas. My car's around the corner. I need to get one of those one of those things that you put gas in. Do you have like $5? And I would act like I didn't even know what it was called. And it was easier for me to, because I was, I was like a girl on the street in, in, in my 20s. And people would be like, oh, she must have just run out of gas. But right. it also like keeps you using longer when you're able to do that. But then also the shame of that, as it does feel like I'm a girl, I shouldn't be doing this. You know, of and that, that did stick with me for a while, you know, like that's, yeah. it, it definitely stayed with me for a while. So, well, she, I recognized her immediately. She recognized me. We had a very interesting uh, interaction while I worked at that rehab. I worked at rehabs when I was newly sober because nobody else would fucking hire me, obviously, as a convicted felon and as, you know, high school dropout, all, you know, blah, blah, blah. Needless to say, I didn't have the best boundaries, which I don't think is uncommon. No. But here's like here's the kicker. Here's the punchline. Maybe fuck, I don't know, two years ago, I think. Could have been it was after COVID, because I remember the stores were all open again. But one of my corporate trainers, this girl that's been with me forever, said that there was a kid at Calabasas and he wanted to talk to me. Was it okay to give him my number? About and I'm I'm thinking like, oh, he's got a drug problem, whatever. And uh, I said, sure, give my number. So he calls me and he's just like, hey, man, I know you don't know me, but blah, 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 but my mom is so-and-so. And I'm like, oh, cool. And he's like, yeah, like, do you remember? Like, you guys knew each other, like, on the street. And then she worked at the rehab you were at. And I'm like, there is no way. And this kid was so cute and well-adjusted and smart Aww. and kind. And that was his mom. She, she, she cleaned up and she got her shit together. And like, if I saw that in a movie, I would not believe it. Yeah. But her son worked for me 
and was this great, beautiful, well-adjusted kid. She ended up being this amazing mom. And like, if you read my book, the first one where I talk about Sarah and I used her, her actual name, nice boundaries, Khalil. But if you read my, no, I, I, she knows we were best friends. But if you read my first book, same thing. I mean, I helped a girl get clean and sober. I housed her at Riviera Recovery who had all three of her kids who were from three different dads all taken away by the state. And, you know, this girl talk about hopeless, you know, like shoot to die, like whatever. She is the most beautiful, incredible, amazing woman and amazing mother. And she got all three of her kids back. One of them just moved out. He, I think, uh, how old is Elijah? 21. One of them's about to go off and go to the Navy. And one of them is a professional skateboarder. Oh, that's so and cool. She's like one of my best friends in the world. And like, we have those types of conversations that you can only have with people like ourselves. But like, she tells me like Khalil and she's rich now. She's like, Khalil, I wouldn't even try to tell my neighbors because she lives in a really nice fucking neighborhood. She's like, I wouldn't even try to tell them about my past. She goes, it's not that I'm embarrassed. She goes, they wouldn't fucking believe me. They see me with the suburban taking the kids to karate practice and jujitsu practice and going to church on Wednesday and going to church on Sunday. Like we became the suckers that we used to make fun of. The totally. people that did get up and go to work, the people that do go to church, like the, the fucking joke was on us. Yes. We were the suckers. Yes, 100%. We were the suckers. So yeah. I worry about that too, that people aren't going to believe me. My record is still listed online. And my husband has actually said before, he's like, we should try to get that expunged. And I'm like, no, I don't want to because there's no, there's no other evidence. I want you to see how many times I got arrested. I want it to be there. Cause I worry too, sometimes that people like literally won't believe me. So how did you get, cause you're on the streets. You obviously have no health insurance. You have no money. We have to detox as opiate addicts. How did you get to a detox and get clean and start putting your life back together? Uh, that's simple. Bob Forrest, the guy that became famous during the whole celebrity rehab fucking show scandal, whatever that thing was. I don't blame him for being on there. And he finally made money that he deserved to make because Bob Forrest helped just about every famous actor and musician for 15 years without ever taking a penny from anyone and lived like a goddamn pauper. And obviously I can't mention the people that he helped because some of them their recovery is, is not publicly known, but like he was my, he was the guy that there was a woman named Penny who I would shack up with for money from time to time. She was older. She had a lot of money. And she said, you know, if you ever want to stop being like that, you can call this guy, Bob, and he works for this uh, organization called Musicians Assistance Program. And, you know, they'll put you into treatment and they'll put you into a halfway house. And, and that, and that was it. I eventually, after bottoming out and digging further and bottoming out and getting out the pickaxe and bottoming out, you know, I was one of those guys that just was like, oh, is this the bottom? Wait, let me dig a little bit further. The, the, yeah, the, my, my, the, the punctured colon fucking bleeding out, you know, letting guys jack off on me and fucking come all over me for crack money. Like that wasn't enough. Like I had to just keep, keep going. So Bob was like, yeah, man, come on in. We'll, we'll, uh, we'll get you sorted out. And I didn't believe him, you know, but it was real. I went to musician's assistant program. They, they put me into Pasadena recovery center. They paid for it. 
And then they put me into New Perceptions, which is this uh, sober living owned by Will and, uh, and Thelma, brother and sister from Compton. Um, it was an all black owned, black operated sober living that uh, a brown kid from Ohio that never really felt like I fit in with white people. It was kind of, it was kind of cool. I felt tough. You know, I was yeah. with, with these people that had like teardrops on the side of their face. And I didn't even know what those meant, but yeah, they musicians assistance program paid for everything. They gave me $40 a week to live on. And the requirement was two meetings a day or you had to get a job. So I did the two meetings a day thing for a long time and I survived on ramen noodles and pasta from Smart and Final with the giant Prego things and the cheap, dirt cheap tobacco that you would roll yourself. You know, you could roll yourself a cigarette mm-hmm. for five cents back then. This is 20 years ago. And that's how I survived. I detail exactly in my second book, I detail exactly how I went from living on $40 a week to living the life that I live now. If you're interested, look at my Instagram. It's pretty amazing. I thank God every day. I'm living a life beyond my wildest dreams. I detail in my second book exactly how I got here. The funny thing is, is the first book, which is the memoir with the scary looking mugshot on the front. That book, I was just telling Jackie, my assistant, that to this day, I get thousands of dollars every single month. Fucking money just keeps pouring in 10 years later from something that I worked on for intensely for a a short period of time. And, um, and money just keeps pouring in. Now the second book, which I think is way better lessons. I learned crawling out of hell. Uh, the book's called remembering to live lessons. I learned crawling out of hell. Nobody wants to hear about hard work. Nobody wants to hear about cleaning houses and, and, and washing dogs and cleaning dogs, anal glands. And, and, you know, no one wants to hear about that shit. People want to hear about the Cinderella story, the guy that went from rags to riches, but it wasn't like, oh yeah, I got sober and then I found this big pot of gold and I started buying Rolex watches. No, it doesn't, it doesn't work like that. And by the way, if it did work like that, I'd probably be fucking high or dead because the one thing that I was always missing was humility. And I barely have any now, as you can tell. No, that's not true. I strongly disagree with that. But ultimately- what you did, and this is this is the coolest part of your story, and this is what I want people to know, your work ethic and the relationships you built in early recovery, like he mentioned, washing cars, doing things, your future will build based on that way more than the mistakes of your past. And the relationships that you developed with people are how you continue to build and start to get investors, right? And build your brand. That's essentially what you did, right? You met people, you impress them with your work ethic, and you put your life back together, basically. I want to talk a little bit about the investor thing, because that also kind of contributes to the idea that, well, but the people listening, they're not going to have access to investors. When you say investor, I helped a guy get clean and sober. That guy and I built a friendship. That guy watched me every day, cleaning houses, cleaning people, you know, cleaning people's apartments, washing dogs, running errands for people, cleaning up dog poop. I was a manny for two boys. I was an amazing man- manny. I taught them how to boogie board. And this guy watched me every single day. And I would still go to meetings every single day. So after, I think it was 14 months of knowing me, this guy 
said, and he had already seen me owning and operating my own business, which I started with my own money on a shoestring and a prayer, which was Riviera Recovery. Before that, I started my own sober companion business because I was good at babysitting people because I worked for you know famous people when I was a kid. I, wa- I washed people's cars and I was in a band and I was around enough famous people to know how to be small when I needed to be small and be present when I needed to be present. And so that investor, just for the record, was one of the most notorious, scariest, I won't say what line of work he was in, but he was in recovery. And he was known as a guy that if you did not pay him back, you were not walking away. Let's just, let's just put it that way. So I borrowed $208,000 exactly from that person. And I paid that person back. So I don't want anybody listening to this to think that I was able to go to Morgan Stanley or I was able to talk to Lorraine Jobs or I was able to get investors. Now I've got all those fancy fucking people climbing up my ass wanting to buy half my company. But in the beginning, no, I worked, I saved every penny. I bought gold and silver. It's all outlined in my second book. I can, if you want to go from broke to millionaire, I can show you exactly how to do it. You got to read that book. If you want what I have, you got to do what I did. But I need people to understand you do not have to be smart to be successful. I am living proof of that. You do not have to be educated. You do not have to have skills or talent. You just have to have a desire. And the real secret is if you're in our club, you got to fucking stay clean and sober. You got to stay clean and sober. There's a guy that I, I helped five years ago that had an even more meteoric rise than I did. But because it didn't happen in his timing and the way he wanted it to happen and because he didn't get he, – he started getting the career, but he didn't get the girl. Some guys get the girl, but they don't get the career. Because it didn't happen the way that his fucking ego told him that it should happen, he fucking lied and started using again. And now he's fucked because my rich ass friend that gave me the money to put him in treatment for a year – was like, if that dude fucks up, I'm done with him. And he fucked up and my friend still helped him. And then he fucked up and my friend still helped him. And the third time he fucked up, my friend was like, get the fuck out of my house. Give me my fucking dog back. Give me my ATM card back and get the fuck away from me. And so now that guy, unfortunately, is back in Jersey and he wants to kill himself now. So you got to stay clean and sober. Don't leave before the miracle happens. That, that's not just some cute fucking saying. Miracles are going to happen. If they're going to happen for me, why wouldn't they happen for you? Oh, God loves me more because I'm weird and I'm shaped funny and I have a weird name or because I knew famous people. No, bullshit. God loves all of us the same. The only difference between me and most of the people that I knew or most of the people that I hung out with, they went out. They fucking went out. They relapsed. I lost I I think you and I were talking at this time. I lost two best friends that I used to get high with within the span of 10 days. I lost two best friends. And these motherfuckers were better looking than me, taller than me, smarter than me. One of them came from a bunch of money at one point. He burned through it because he kept fucking relapsing. Just fucking stay clean and sober. I don't know if that means you're going to open up your own business or you're going to meet the girl of your dreams or you're going to get a fucking 
irritating, hairless Egyptian cat <laughs> that's going to keep me out of <laughs> doing a podcast. I don't know what your dreams are going to look like, but dreams come true and success is coming to you right now. Say it out loud with me. Abundance and prosperity is coming to me now, quickly, easily, and painlessly from all directions right now. It's happening. I love that. I love that. So I know that spirituality is a huge part of your recovery and you've referenced 12 step several times. So obviously I know that you, you did 12 step early on. What would you say are the benefits of, cause I'm a 12 step person also, and I know there are a variety of ways to recover and the 12 step can kind of be the beginning. What are the benefits? What were the benefits for you of 12 step, the meetings and the steps and the sponsorship? Like what were the benefits for you? The, the greatest reparenting one can ever experience is in the 12 steps of whatever fucking program you choose. I went to a couple in the beginning. One of them, I was not tough enough and I didn't have the right tattoos and I didn't say fuck enough. So I didn't feel welcome. And one of them offered more hugs from old ladies that <laughs> wanted to give hugs one of them worked much better for me, but it's the greatest reparenting. I often used to brag in the beginning that I raised myself. I raised myself. My parents weren't around. My parents abandoned me. My parents this, my parents that. I raised myself. I raised myself. I raised myself and I did a horrible fucking job. Horrible job. So 12 steps were the greatest reparenting I ever could have gone through. 12 steps changed my life. I grabbed onto 12 steps like a drowning man sees as a life preserver I got a sponsor at six months. At eight months, I did the steps for the first time. I went through the steps another four times as outlined in the book, like religiously, maniacally, like a fucking homework assignment. I sponsored people. I took them through 12-step programs. I was addicted and obsessed with 12 steps, with the fellowship. In the beginning, not in a good way. In the beginning, I was chasing women like you when you were a newcomer. And I'm not proud to say that. I'm embarrassed to say that it is kind of funny, but it's not funny. It's fucking, it's sad as the great Jimmy Mack finally grabbed me and threw me up against the wall and said, hey, Khalil, <laughs> let them get on their fucking feet before you put them on their back. <laughs> yeah. I've actually never so, heard that. That's hilarious. <laughs> it's a Boston thing. That's a Boston saying. So, you know, 12 steps, 12 steps, 12 steps, obsessed, really, really, really got into the Power of Now by Eckhart Tolle when I was six months sober. And then thank God, you know, I did the Think and Grow Rich. I did The Secret. I did all that stuff. But the biggest, most pivotal, life-changing thing for me was Byron Katie. Byron Katie wrote a book called, I think it's called Loving What Is, and she calls it The Work. The Work. And it's, yeah, it's kind of 12-step-ish, but it's different. And uh, the work in that book, it was a fucking complete paradigm shift. I had a complete paradigm shift, which then allowed me to have many spiritual awakenings over the last 20 years. But that was the beginning for me, 12 steps, ad nauseum, power of now, which helped me to sort of, I was wrestling with the God thing like, oh yeah, well, if there's a God, then why the fuck did, you know, I get molested? And how come I had these fucked up parents that were immigrants? Listen, 
20 years later, thank God I went through what I went through. I wouldn't wish that pain and suffering on my worst enemy, but thank God I went through what I went through because I finally got a tiny little bit of humility. I finally shifted my focus from victimhood to champion, to conqueror, to success story. My, my new line drops on the 17th with my favorite clothing brand. I can't believe at 53 years old, I got asked to do a capsule collection. Oh, that's so this, cool. Yeah, this is my line. It drops on the 17th, 10,000 gear. I don't know if you can read that. Yes, it says, okay, so for the, those of you that are just listening, it says, I didn't crawl my way out of hell to live an ordinary life on a t-shirt. That's why you've, you've, started, you've been using that little emoji, the fire emoji. Okay, yeah, or this, the, the, is, this uh, is my line emoji. that's coming out. So thank you. I'm that's super, so cool. These are extra large. Uh, <laughs> uh, they're not mine. Um, not that misshapen. Um, <laughs> five foot seven, can you imagine? Extra large. Anyway, um, I probably just offended a lot of extra large people. So call your sponsor, go to a meeting. So those were the things, you know, Think and Grow Rich had a huge impact on me. The work by Byron Katie, Eckhart Tolle, and The Power of Now. I did not like A New Earth. It was way too fucking new agey and way over my head. I'm just not... The second one, I couldn't get into either. I also loved the first one. Yeah. The second one, I tried really hard to read. You know, Byron Katie, I read, I need to go back and reread Please. because yeah. I love that kind of stuff. And I think this is probably indicative of maybe like how early in my recovery I still was. I couldn't understand. I couldn't apply the concept. When it's I like, get it. I do you know it. what I mean? And I was reading it over and over I, and over again. And I was like- more than you can- I read The Road Less Traveled when I was 25 years old. And I'm like, oh my God, that's my mom. That's my dad. That's my girlfriend. That's my neighbor. Like I would read The Road Less Traveled, which is basically about like how fucked up people are. And I'm like that person. It's that person. It's that person. I reread The Road Less Traveled a couple of years ago. And I was like, oh, that's me. Wait, I do that. Oh, fuck. That's me. Oh my God, I need to stop doing that. How bizarre is it? It's the same fucking book. Yeah. It's just my my perspective as a as an arrogant fucking fame whore seeking whatever 24-year-old versus a man who's been humbled by his own actions and addictions and, and pencils, how different my perspective is. And so I I get it. Byron Katie, loving what is. Uh, there's so much more. I list a lot of the stuff in my book. I talk a lot about this stuff on my Instagram. I have one last question that I've never asked anyone. You're super into crystals. I don't know that much about crystals, but I kind of love it. What like two crystals would you recommend for someone newly in recovery that's scared and wants to gravitate towards something healing? Oh, you're pulling on my heartstrings right now. I wish I could just give them a crystal. I, I give a lot of crystals as gifts. It's an individual thing. Okay. I would suggest anybody to go to a crystal store. If you want a little point in the right direction, I would say amethyst and rose quartz for anybody in addiction. The, the, that's where I would start with amethyst and rose quartz. They're incredibly healing. I wish I could. Can I lift this? Yeah, I can lift this. Whoa. What's yeah, that one? sits every morning. You're the first girl to ever say that to me. Uh, <laughs> yeah. That sits with me every single morning. I sit near that. Thank you for getting that reference. Um, and uh, 
And amethyst is very healing. It's been used for thousands of years for healing. Rose quartz is also incredibly healing. Okay. My favorite is, is citrine. Okay. I absolutely love citrine. Citrine is for abundance and prosperity. I could go on and on and on about that stuff. I've got, there's so many crystals in here that if somebody actually saw it, they would probably call the police. I am the fucking cat lady of crystals. I really truly believe that crystals give you magic powers. I really do. I don't even know what that means, but like when you hold them near you, like I got in the sauna this morning and I held a piece of adventurine, which by the way, is a very inexpensive stone. Okay. You can get large pieces for a, a, a cheap amount. I have fucking boulders of it everywhere all over my yard. I love adventuring. Okay. It's green. But I was holding this piece of adventuring this morning and I, there's no way it was a placebo effect. I felt the energy of this stone and I've got stones, I've got crystals in the foundation of my home. Oh. I wish I could show you when you come here to visit next time, I'll show you. I have pieces of, what is the black meteorite stone from Russia? I have pieces of this black stone. I have spheres of black obsidian placed around my yard to absorb any negativity. Like That's so cool. I have this, I have this huge, can you see that? Yes. What is that? <gasps> That that is onyx. That is one of the most powerful stones ever. It's like a fountain. And okay, you guys, there's a giant, it's probably the size of me, onyx fountain in his yard. It is. It's yeah, it's it's incredible. Okay. And um This is why I wanted to ask you about that, because it's like an alternative yeah, way to I'm heal. Obsessed. And I've never asked anybody that knows about that stuff, and I'm kind of into it too. So I just wanted to get what your recommendations were. You know, the essential oils and the crystals and like I spray myself with, with rose water at least 10 times a day. I'm obsessed with rose water. Make sure you get it in a glass bottle. Okay. Don't get it in a plastic bottle because you don't want that shit absorbing into your skin. Okay. Vitamins, superfoods, smoothies, juices. Listen, I went from a 109-pound walking corpse with my teeth falling out of my head. I am 171 pounds right now. I am stronger than shit. I would beat the living shit out of the 23-year-old version of myself, and I'm 53 years old now. I just started a modeling career. I'm working on my third book. I operate businesses in five different states. I've got over 350 employees. Guys, please listen to me when I say this. If a fucking moron like me can crawl my way out of hell and build this incredible life, through the power and grace of God and 12-step programs and sobriety is the foundation, of course you can. As a matter of fact, you're probably way smarter than me. You probably have talents, which I don't. You probably have different access to different things that I didn't have access to. You're probably half my fucking age, many of you, and, and many of you 10 years, 15, 20 years younger than me. I didn't open Sun Life Organics until I was 41 years old. Age is bullshit. It's a number. Don't buy into that bullshit. Don't buy into that lie. And don't ever be ashamed of your past. Use it as your sword to cut through all of the bullshit in life. You're not a paper angel. You know, I go back to LA and I see all the, now all these fucking hot girls on Instagram are like, hey, we should hang out. I'm, I always say, why? That's always my response. Why? What? What? I was fucking invisible for 29 years of living there. Now that I'm rich or you saw me with someone famous, now you want to hang out with me. But like those people, if you turn them sideways, they're just, they're cardboard angels. Everyone on this podcast 
is a real angel. Because if I turn you sideways because of the shit that you went through, you have a heart and you have a soul and you have depth to your being. And that's why you and I resonated with one another when we met one another. And the same thing with Doug and the same thing with Lauren and Michael. I don't know Michael as well, but yeah, man, go and live your fucking dreams. Well, I cannot thank you enough. Thank you so much for your time. This was amazing. Everybody can find you. Your Instagram is... At Khalil Rafati, K-H-A-L-I-L-R-A-F-A-T-I. Very easy to find you. I know you've got to run, so I'm going to let you go. I cannot thank you enough, Khalil. Thank you so much for your time. Of course. Of course. I'll see you soon, I hope. Okay. Awesome.